Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. So let's begin with a question. Divide the crowd up. Is it uh, Marvel or DC? If you could... How many say Marvel? How many say DC? Now, I think Marvel maybe makes the better movies, but who could be Batman, right? I mean, I mean uh, except the last Batman movie was kind of disappointing. But uh, so who's your favorite? Uh, Superman, Batman, or uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man? Um, so let me ask the question, um, what, did, what did people discuss before comic books? You can go to the next slide. Norse or Greek mythology. This has been a discussion as long as there has been people. Uh, superheroes have been a part of our culture. The myths, as they're called, um, ha- are these epic stories of uh, teaching lessons, but mostly uh, the world gets into trouble and uh, some superhuman, super powerful God rescues humanity. The reason I bring this up is uh, um, back in September 19th, 1931, it is often called the uh, night discussion. And there was a discussion, believe it or not, between J.R.R. Tolkien, Hugo Dyson, and C.S. Lewis. Now, Tolkien and Lewis are arguably the two greatest writers of the 20th century. Um, They're more popular today than they were during their time. Um, Lewis felt that within 10 years of his death that nobody would remember who he was. And uh, by my count, there's like four or five books that have been written this year about Lewis, almost as if Lewis um, is, is... you know, people are discovering things about his writing, the big secret that was revealed a couple years ago with the book Planet Narnia, that he had, a, had something behind his writing that he kept a secret. So it, it's amazing that these two were part of this discussion. The discussion went to 3 o'clock in the morning when Tolkien said, I have to go home, and the discussion continued on for another hour between Lewis and Dyson. Here's what the discussion was. The... Dyson and Tolkien believed the Christ story, and Lewis was an atheist. During the discussion, Tolkien said to Lewis, don't you get it? All the the story of Christ is the great myth. Now, in their time, myth was a grand story, not necessarily a false story. But his point was that... A myth working on us the same way as the others, but with one tremendous difference. The Christ myth is true. Now, myth is kind of awkward because your brain's probably saying, I'm saying this is a false story that's true. But the point being that what Tolkien was saying to Lewis is your love of mythology, humanity's love of mythology, this this love for a superhero 
this uh, desire for somebody to come in and rescue us is born in the heart of all people, but they all point to one thing, the story of Christ, that the God-man comes to earth, lives among us, and rescues humanity. Well, they all went home, and Tolkien writes three, day, uh, three days later, he was in a sidecar of a motorcycle of all places. Um, he did not drive for a very long time. He failed his driving test 16 times. Um, and while riding in the motorcycle sidecar on September 22, 1931, going to the zoo, he writes that he got into the sidecar an atheist and arrived at the zoo believing in Christ. I can tell you that uh, Tolkien and Lewis would have voted for Norse mythology. Uh, Lewis's writings and Tolkien's writings are just so much immersed in those, in those stories. And uh, Lewis writes much of his love for the Northness, the coldness the, uh, um, of North mythology. So why bring that up? Well, we're going to talk this morning a little bit about uh, world history, human history. And so I'm, in a sense, preaching to the choir because most of you would agree with the, with the premise or what I'm going to seek to uh, prove, but you would be in a minority right now in the Christian realm. So let's, let's just sort of begin the story, and we'll come up to the place where, where there is disagreement. So the grand story of human history is that in the beginning, God creates a kingdom, he creates a man and a woman and places them in a garden on the earth and they're to govern it and reign over it. It's kingdom words. Um, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the animals that scurry along the crown, ground. They were then tempted by the third chapter of Genesis, violated the one rule are corrupted and, and hand over the kingdom to Satan. The New Testament refers to Satan as being the prince of this world or the, king, the ruler of this world. In the dialogue after the fall, God hints, and it's in a fairly obscure saying that someone is going to come who will crush the serpent's head. And as the story continues, real quickly, the world becomes corrupted except for one family, and the, uh, the flood comes, and Noah and his family, in a sense, beginning again. Uh, then the world uh, still doesn't learn its lesson, and then we have the Tower of Babel. And right after that, we see that God chooses a man and a woman, and through this couple, they're going to form a great nation and that God is going to focus on this nation, and this nation will be the means by which he will bring about this grand plan of saving humanity. Generations pass, and David is king of Israel, and God says to David through the prophet Nathan that now your throne is going to be the throne on which this God-man, this Messiah, will sit, the one that will save humanity. Then, as generations pass, we begin to see the prophets begin to 
flesh out what this is going to look like. Uh, and so before we look at that, if you throw up the next slide, this is where we come to a difference. Because when Jesus comes in the cross, the kingdom doesn't take place. And we're going to look this morning at a strong pronouncement on the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And so there is the majority of Christians today, and a lot of the smart ones, the, uh, probably the guys that I read the most, would hold to the fact that uh, God is finished with Israel, that the church has taken Israel's place, and that the kingdom, if it takes place on earth, will not be a part of, of Israel, that it's then that, or that it's referring to eternity. Now, God made some pretty strong promises we're going to look at. In fact, uh, Al Mohler recently went on the record of really uh, mocking. He has a few times where he just kind of laughs at uh, those that would hold to a millennial view. Uh, Paul Weaver had... Uh, has been uh, in his uh, podcast, um, actually has one podcast, or maybe it's a two-parter, where they actually work through what Al Mohler says and respond uh, publicly to his public statements. Next week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. So this morning, we're going to, in a sense, be fairly theological, and, and we're going to ask two questions. Is God done with Israel, and is there going to be an earthly millennium? And then next week, we're going to talk about how, what is our part and our role in all of this. So just to quickly uh, run through what this millennium will look like, just some of the highlights. The promised kingdom. Uh, there will be a government in which the Messiah will be the king over the entire earth. The capital will be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the, for the joy of the whole earth. Jerusalem will never fear for her safety, is in uh, Isaiah 26. You can imagine comparing Israel to the last 75 years as a nation. The Lord will be king and he'll rule over the whole earth, Daniel 7. Jeremiah 30 speaks of other princes and nobles who will share in the governmental duties. This is the discussion among the, the disciples are, uh, hey, um, What's going to be our job? Can, can I be on your right hand and my brother be on your left hand? The problem with the idea that this is describing heaven uh, runs into a little bit of trouble. Um, Isaiah 11 says that he'll bring justice to the poor. There will be poor people in the kingdom. And fair decisions for the exploited. There will be people that will be exploited um, but the earth will shake, it says in Isaiah 11, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. And so there will be justice and, uh, for all people. Nobody dies in heaven, but in this kingdom, there will be people who will die. Uh, no longer, this is Isaiah 65, will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the curse will die that young. But it appears that people will die. Um, rebellion will be punished. There's not going to be rebellion in heaven. 
um, and so on and so forth. But I want to focus on that verse that's on the bottom of the certainty of this. Jeremiah 31 says, I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. This is what the Lord says, just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, <clears throat> when we have, over the last few years, I think we're in our fourth year now of um, Maybe we even started it before 2020, but we, uh, we have a series called Epic, and we have taken sections of the Old Testament, the Old Testament story, and we have spent uh, a couple months um, each year talking about uh, the individuals and the stories through the Old Testament. Um, and then when we finished, a number of people said, oh, you know, kind of sad to see this Epic go away, so we're talking about now we can do epic women, epic men, epic villains, epic this, epic that. So we'll just keep it going. Um, epic stories. Um, the point of that is that this, that every time I have gone through the history, the story of the Old Testament, I say something like this. The Old Testament is a story of failure. Every patriarch failed. Every priest failed failed. Every prophet failed. Every king failed. Every person failed. And they all are pointing to and creating a longing for someone who will be the perfect patriarch, the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect priest, even the perfect common man. Jesus lived for 30 years and was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And so the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is that one who comes into, into humanity and is going to save us. The New Testament opens with this idea of the kingdom is at hand. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began to preach, and his message was this. Repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it's called different things. And we're going to talk about this next week because this helps us to understand some of the problematic passages about uh, that could sound like you're losing, you could lose your salvation or you're not saved. And uh, I think it all becomes clear when we approach these with a kingdom mindset. So let's really fast forward into Jesus' life and come down to the last week. A few weeks ago, Pastor Lyle spoke on the triumphal entry, and uh, um, then I referred to it a couple weeks ago, but when the triumphal entry takes place, all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, including the timing of Daniel's uh, 69 weeks, 483 years, all converge on this moment, and it would appear from the outside looking in that the Messiah has entered Jerusalem and here comes the kingdom. There's just one big problem. We've also been learning that behind the scenes, the leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. And so we know that while on Sunday everything looks grand, uh, where people are laying down their coats and palm branches and, 
and for, uh, speaking psalms of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, save us. And yet this undercurrent, by the time we get to next Sunday, Jesus will have been killed. So, <clears throat> Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry. Now, the Mark passage is Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. But I'm going to set this up using Matthew. Because the Olivet Discourse in Matthew is Matthew 24. But Matthew 23 is where I want to camp down for, for a minute. <clears throat> Matthew 23 is where Jesus has clear, clear, cleansed the temple. And he is now going to pronounce judgment on the nation. The nation at this moment has officially rejected the Messiah. And so Jesus begins this horrifying um, series of statements. Absolutely horrifying. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you to look at how these verses begin. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, uh, some translations use the word woe instead of what sorrow. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Verse 15. Verse 16, blind guides. 16 or 17, blind fools. Eight, 19, how blind for which is more important. And, and he goes in to talk about how they break their word Verse 23, what sorrow awaits. Verse 24, blind guides. Verse 25, what sorrows await. Verse 26, blind Pharisees. Verse 27, what sorrow awaits. Verse 26 or 28, outward you look like religious people, but inward your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, what sorrow awaits. Verse 31, sons of murderers. Verse 33, snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Verse 34, therefore I'm sending you the prophets, wise men, and religious leaders of the law, but you will kill some by crucifixion. You'll flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from the city. Verse 35, the hammer falls. As a result... You will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of the righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. Imagine being there and hearing that. Imagine being a disciple and saying, oh, um, I guess it's not going to happen. Well, we'll get paper towels after. <laughs> That's why I have a lid, you know. <laughs> so anyway, listen to the heart of the Messiah after delivering that scathing pronouncement of judgment. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, Stones God's messengers. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens protect her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now, look, your house is abandoned and desolate. I tell you this, and listen carefully. 
you will never see me again. Interesting words next. Until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's pronouncing judgment on this generation. And he says to the nation, you will not see me again until something's going to happen in the future. And the quote is exactly what was said the previous Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is it total rejection? I think the word until doesn't necessarily prove anything, but it causes us to step back and say it would appear that maybe God is not finished. <clears throat> so, imagine being a disciple, and you have served with this man for three years with the understanding that he was the Messiah, and from their way of thinking, this Messiah meant one thing, throwing off the yoke of, of Rome and becoming king in, in the kingdom. So what would be the question they would ask after this? When's it going to happen? What's, what's going on here? And so in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, I think it's Luke 22 and, and uh, Mark 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, he he, he uh, points to the buildings and says, no, not one stone will be left on top of another. And verse 3, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when all this will happen and what will be the sign of your return at the end of the world. Now, we'll refer to this again uh, next week. But in this Jesus is not saying to them that the kingdom is canceled. He's answering their question that there is going to be a time, and this is how you will know when it's going to happen. Now, it's important to remember, there is not a church yet. There is not a rapture yet. This is a, an Old Testament conversation and so this is a kingdom conversation. Okay? So, as Jesus describes, many are familiar with this passage because so much has been written, and more on that next week. But we, we see uh, nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains and more to come. Uh, there'll be people dying and deliver you to tribulation and you'll be killed and hated by other nations. And he goes on to talk about the worst time ever, false messiahs, false prophets, the sun darkened, the son of man will come, and so on and so forth. And to be alert and watching and stay busy. Now we believe that what is being described here is what in Revelation calls the tribulation and what Daniel would refer to as that 70th week, that leftover seven years from the prophecy. Um, my challenge has been this morning is for about every minute that I speak, there's about 10 minutes that I'm keeping squashed down. Uh, when we talked about this, the, the idea of doing a, a series like this, um, I decided that I would start reading books and then I found that every time I read a book, it gave me 50 more things I wanted to say, and um, you would be miserable. 
Um, and so uh, I've put those books aside and I'll start them a week from tomorrow um, after we're done. But it doesn't sound, my point from the, all of this is it doesn't sound as if the kingdom has been canceled for Israel. This is an Israel conversation. This is an Old Testament conversation. This is in the context of the, the generation being rejected and now what's going to happen. So let's move forward in the week. Um, the next day or two days later, we're at the Last Supper. So the disciples are all grown men. Maybe some are late teenagers. I uh, won't go down that trail. Um, but in Luke 22... Jesus says this to the disciples, you have stayed with me in my time of trial. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, okay, this is after the pronunciation, this is hours before the arrest, literally hours, 24, 36 hours before his death, the father has granted me a kingdom. There's going to be a kingdom. And so the question of whether there's going to be a kingdom or not, like an amillennial view, I don't know how it would even stand up under this statement. So the question becomes of whether it's eternity. And he says, I grant you the right. So Jesus says, the Father's granted me the kingdom, and here I'm going to grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. You will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that could mean... Eternity, because they're obviously going to die before this happens, but he's saying you're going to be there. Next week, we're going to talk about how you can be there. Um, and so the authority over the 12 tribes of Israel now is being vested under, to, to uh, has been, the power to reign over them has been vested with the disciples. And again, it doesn't sound like eternity. I don't, there will not be judging in eternity. So now let's fast forward um, a little bit later, uh, seven plus weeks. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. This is the last moment the disciples are with Jesus. What's going to be their question? Okay, is now? And so Acts chapter 1 uh, Luke introduces um, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles time after time. And verse 4, he says, once he was eating with them, he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The disciples have a question. He's going he's gonna to be gone in minutes. Wait, 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 wait. We have a question. What's that? Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Again, notice their understanding. Free Israel, in other words, throw off the yoke of Rome and establish our kingdom. Again, we're not in the church yet. We're still in it. And in a sense, an Old Testament conversation, the context of the Old Testament. Jesus' response, he does not say, kingdom? What kingdom? He doesn't say, free Israel? What Israel? 
he says, the Father has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you're to be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He does not say, their, their question, is there going to be a kingdom? If there wasn't, Jesus would have said no. Is there going, if there was not going to be a kingdom for Israel, Jesus would have said again, the kingdom's been canceled. The question is not answered with no, or that's not going to happen, you're misunderstanding. It's, the question implies, the answer implies that they have the right idea, just the right wrong time and so he leaves with the promise being stated that he is going to return in the same way you saw him go again we're not talking anything about the rapture now we're really going to come to the to the meat of answering this question so now the church has been started and peter is going to be speaking to the nation of Israel. And so if you want to turn to Acts 3, we're going to put the verses up behind here too. And I'm going to carefully take another drink. Acts 3.14, speaking to Israel. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, he's stating the very things that a person who would hold to the fact that God has abandoned Israel, the cessation or that the church has replaced Israel, he's stating the very facts that are used to make that case. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how, so he's talking about a miracle. Now repent of your sins so that your sins may be wiped away. Now look at verse 20. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you, Jesus, your appointed Messiah. He's speaking to Israel from inside the church, so to speak. And he's saying the Messiah, your Messiah, not our Messiah. He's speaking to Israel, your Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time of the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through the prophets. And he'll raise you up, a prophet like me, from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you, and so on and so forth. And he's inviting them to salvation. In the book of Revelation, we see this reality where Jesus comes riding on the white horse brings peace to the earth we'll, we'll finish with that in a few minutes so one more place Romans 11 has God rejected Israel now read with me you don't have to read out loud but so I asked then has God rejected his own people the nation of Israel course not
I myself am an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, it's important to understand he's talking about Israel and that there is the point that Israel can come and be a part of the church. Um, and so there's this grafting, and we don't have time to, to go down that, that trail, but it was the, the Gentiles were grafted into the Israel plant, so to speak. Not the Israel plant was uprooted and replaced with a Gentile plant. Verse 11, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles, but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. And if the people of Israel... Turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them into the tree. Gentiles, you by nature were a branch cut from a wild olive tree, so if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he would be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree. He's warning the Gentiles not to feel superior. Well, let's be honest. Uh, the church hasn't done so great in the last 2,000 years, right? Because if we told the story of the church, it would look a lot like the Old Testament. A lot of failing and God doing a great work in spite of our failings. So verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, as the scripture, scripture says, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and will turn Israel away from ungodliness. Now, he's using the word Israel. It's important to understand this is, not, this is treating Israel as a special subgroup different from, from the other nations. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet, they are still the people... He loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is differentiating between Israel and the church. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. So let's close this morning by jumping ahead to Revelation. And it, we'll talk next week a little bit about the timing that obviously the, the statement about the millennium, the thousand years, takes place before the new heaven and the new earth, before we enter eternity. All I want to point out today is how many times the writer states the number of years. So we're not talking about eternity. We're talking about a thousand years. Aren't you glad that heaven will last longer than a thousand years? Verse 2, the serpent will be bound in chains for a thousand years and will not cause trouble, verse 3, for a thousand till a thousand years are over. And they'll, verse 4, they'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead will not come back to life until the thousand years have ended. And verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, for then the second death holds no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. We'll talk about that next week. When the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. Now, 
Here's the arc of human history. Does human history end with Christ, the, the hero, delivering us from sin at the cross and then restoring humanity to the original intent stated all the way back in the Garden of Eden and human history ends with the Messiah righting all the wrongs. Peace in the animal kingdom, peace in humanity, um, looking out for the poor, the despised, and bringing everything back to the place that it will be. Or does that happen in eternity and human history ends in failure? It couldn't be delivered. And that's why I think the timing is so important and that's why the book of Revelation is constructed the way that they are, that inside this arc of human history, we see the God-man stepping into history, rescuing us from sin and stepping into history and, rec and restoring human history so that it ends in victory, not because we're so great, but because our hero, the Messiah, the God-man, has restored us. Humanity loves heroic stories. And, and, and the thing we're going to talk about next week is the fact that God has given us the privilege of being able to be a part of this story. And we're going to look at a few parables and a few statements in the New Testament that sometimes are confusing. And I have to, I'm not going to say another word about that because then I'll start down a rabbit trail and I'm not going to do that. But Jesus is the true hero of history. And not only up to this point, but in the future when he restores everything back to the way God originally intended. And you can be a part of that. Our faithful living is the qualification for being a part of that, of that kingdom process. And more on that next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the reality of... your love for us, your patience. Over and over and over again, we see uh, sinners finding in you forgiveness and love, acceptance and healing. Father, may we never lose the wonder of this amazing story that you have invited us to be a part of. God, fill us, fill us with, with zeal, with excitement. Help us to never lose the wonder of being a part of what you're doing in this world, both now and in the years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.